Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. All right. Well, um, today I'm really grateful and excited to welcome um, a very special guest to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast, Carol Sanford, who's been a long time. Uh, I know you hate this word, uh, but I'll use it anyway. Then don't say right it. In, it popped right <laughs> into my head. Well, a longtime resource for me and um, okay. and also inspiration and, and on lots of different levels. Really, I think a lot of my thinking has evolved significantly through my relationship with you, Carol. And um, so I'm really grateful for you taking the time. And um, I, I wanted to just let everybody know who's listening in that um, Carol has been diagnosed with ALS. So um, some there'll be there may be some speech slurring due to that. But um, I'm finding your speech to be super clear and uh, okay. Yeah, so no no problems. So just one last thing to say before we jump in, so people kind of understand, I've been working in Carol's Change Agent Development School for, I think, going on a decade now. And that's a big part of, I think, how I've really brought more rigor to my thinking around regeneration. And in a lot of ways, I have to say, the way that we're approaching Regen Network and the way that we're approaching the different dimensions of my work are definitely um, have moved significantly and have some deep roots in my work with you, Carol. So I'm I'm always super grateful for that. Well, I'm glad to hear that, or, or we've been wasting our time. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say... Um, I would add to your list that I also think we've become friends. Yes. Uh, so at the level of community, uh, I get to grow alongside you and with you and because of you. And so I'm grateful to be here also. Yeah. No, it's uh, it's <clears throat> been a really b- beautiful thing, developing that relationship. And, you know, and with the larger community as well. It's been interesting to to learn and grow the understand the multiple layers of communing that take place in the the school that you've developed and so some of the things that I wanted to talk about here just to sort of like briefly map the things that were on my mind as I was contemplating this conversation one of them is just a little bit of a conversation about lineage because I think it's so often not even on in the conversations people tend to assume that wherever they're starting from it's sort of starting fresh and there's this illusion of the blank slate of things and instead i would sort of propose that actually we're all building on the shoulders of giants in in so many ways and there are there are different lineages and schools and one of the things I've really loved about w- working with you is how you make that explicit and how you invite people to make direct relationships with different lineages and sort of explore those directly themselves. So I want to talk a little bit about lineage. I wanted to talk a little bit about, I think, essence. And I also wanted maybe to just give you a little bit of a platform to talk about what you think, because, you know, I'm just thinking back on, I don't know if you're still producing the contrarian perspective that you're doing with uh, Zach, but um, just give you an opportunity, if there's anything that you sort of want to take a hot take on. (laughs) Okay. 
I'll think about that. <laughs> that, that, that emerges to just, you know, be in, invited to do so. Because I think that that um, art that you have of disrupting people's thinking so that we come back fresh and, you know, dig a little bit deeper into our assumptions, I think is really, it's really helped me. So it might help others as well. So that's kind of, you know, that's that's all I've, I've got. It's, as you can see, it's it's pretty open. It's pretty open-ended. There are questions, there are questions that I am, either currently grappling with or or perennially grappling with, you know, like for Essence, for instance, maybe we start there. So we did it, you and I did an Essence reveal around region network with Christian and I and you, and we've used it since that day within region network, uh, within R&D Inc., at least the company that I'm the CEO of. And um, it's been really I think powerful, but I'd also be hard pressed in some ways to explain why, mm. because it's such a, it's almost, I would say a somatic shift to tune in to essence. And so, and then it's, then it subtly changes the way people are thinking and other things. And that's so different th than the sort of like more explicit ways that people tend to approach business business decision making you know so would you mind taking a moment to just give us a little bit of um maybe mm. a holistic tour of your relationship to essence where that idea and practice came from and then how you experience it in your thinking and practice and maybe how you're experiencing other people in the community relating to it sure uh I think I probably have as much trouble talking about it as you do because it's um you can't do comparisons like you can with many things. And most people do, however, translate it into something they already know. So I would say my work now is to help people understand how distinctive it is and to consider you have nothing in your life right now unless you have worked with a community or a school that has this uh, way of thinking ever come across your life, except probably experientially. And it has a very ancient lineage in many schools. It comes through um, Sufi teachings and particularly uh, one Arme Armenian philosopher, Gurdjieff, took what he learned in Armenia and in the central parts of the ancient world and said, there is something that is left out of most teaching, and that is that there is a way of thinking and seeing the world that allows us to see reality, and then there's a way of seeing the world that gets in our way of seeing reality. And it's really important because most of the time we fabricate and either depending on our propensity, we fabricate the world's coming to an end or we fabricate that is one that we can fix or that some magnificent thing rather than being able to actually see. So it's a way of thinking. Now, it also is a way of thinking about individuals and businesses or any entity. But it is uh, a way of thinking when you're looking at even whether 
a lock on a car works, what the essence of the working, and there's the key word. Uh, essence is about the working of an entity and a system, and that means you begin, you see it alive and working in evaluating process like region network and you within it and other people within it. There, we often get into thinking of entities as fixed and parts and functions and. Uh, in the case of a person, their personality, all of the different parts, and we break it up into pieces. So the purpose of essence is to defragment our way of seeing the world and see to the heart. So you have two beautiful children, at least I think that's all at the moment, right? That's, okay. That's, that's still it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And each of them is a being unto themselves. They are singular. They are one of one. And you may hear somebody say, well, you're a lot like your dad, but you're not your dad. And you're also uh, a lot not like your dad if, you know, they're talking to one of your children uh, or their mom. And what it is, it's a way of learning to see something for what it is and only it is. And it's not in the doing, but in the being. And so... When we did an essence reveal with you, we looked at how you work when you're in uh, your kind of highest self, your fully present self, and you're uh, submitting to the larger process at work. That's what I call the value-adding process. And we watched you in your description, or I watched you, and I asked you, more about what's behind that and behind that and behind that. And the reason for that is we see on the surface, we usually see problems, we see parts, and we can't see the whole. And so with each of your children, if they were in an ordinary world, which you didn't know about this idea, they have in your mind, they become a list of strengths and weaknesses. And that's what we do. We chop them up. And the weaknesses we try and fix and the strengths, we help get them through life. What we want to do is be able to see a child or your business in this case, or a life shed has an essence and be able to work with what it's becoming is singularity. It's one of one. It's uh heart and being that I personally think, uh, and many of the lineage tradition thing, that you're actually born with it. That when you come in for however that works, I mean, I'd be making up uh, anything I said right now, but so knowing that, I would say uh, I choose to hold this like the, the through line of my soul. I'm moving maybe from one lifetime to another. Who knows? I make that up too. Uh, but it helps me make sense of the world, and we have to have some logic. So there are several ancient traditions that uh, there's a, uh, another sage in India called Sri Aurobindo, and he was a lifetime friend of Mahatma Gandhi, or before he was Mahatma Gandhi, and they each took on trying to hold back the uh, colonization of India. 
and Mahatma Gandhi chose the path of nonviolence, and Sri Aurobindo chose the warrior path, and they stayed in touch their whole lives. And when they came together near the end, Gandhi died first. They both talked about that there's something about who they were that they could see as they got older coming through them more and more clearly. And here's your last question in there. What difference does it make? When they were in touch with that essence, it had nothing to do with whether they were warrior or peacemaker. It had to do with the work it was of theirs to do in the world, theirs to teach, theirs to make a difference. And the reason it's helping you and your business is it's a focusing like a laser beam on something that are uniquely to contribute. And no matter what shows up, if we remember that work, uh, we feel on course and can avoid all of the, what you would see as problems and weaknesses, because we're now focusing on being the authentic, true essence expression. I'm not sure that did anything, but that's at this moment, my way of thinking about it. Yeah, no, beautiful. Um, I actually wanted to circle back around on Gurdjieff for a moment. Yeah. I, I mean, there's multiple different layers there that I've always wanted to chat with you about. I find him enig enigmatic and interesting and disruptive and Ultimately, in a lot of ways, a lot of different roads lead back to him as a cultural, spiritual reminder. It's interesting. Anyway, I've been bumping into different people. Yeah. Going, oh, my gosh, Gurdjieff said this. And then, wow, my life, you know, I read whatever it is, Beelzebub's Tales to His Grandchildren or some other piece. And then they're sort of, you know, off getting, you know, getting reconnected somehow to to. Or maybe a more meaningful life. So I'm curious. I mean, so there's a couple layers there. When and how did you bump into Gurdjieff? And um, well, why don't, we, why don't we just start there? And then, well, I have to say, I bumped into a lot of people who had similar ideas long before him. Uh, I was in my 30s when I heard about Gurdjieff. Uh, before that, I would spend a lot of time with some living teachers, uh, which really influenced my work and therefore your experience, which are like Thomas Kuhn and uh, David Bohm. And uh, I say Socrates extensively and Pythagoras. All of them say many of the same things, but uh, Gurdjieff is one of the first who created a community of people to learn together. and. Uh, I met him, uh, not met him in person, but met his work when I was about 33 years old uh, through a community that I joined uh, that brought many of the threads together. So um, Sri Aurobindo was a very strong influence and says, so I can't say I was brought into this way of thinking by Gurdjieff, but it's we have in our school six or seven threads that run through it. And here's a way of thinking about those threads, and it describes a Gurdjieff also. Our school is not one that creates ashrams and particular teachings. We don't have dogma. 
but we have education processes. And watching Gurdjieff do that and and a few people who had worked with him, I learned a lot about the process of having people not adopt other people's ideas and dogma, but uh, use their process to help grow themselves and come to their own self-discovery. So I would say the ideas that are in Gurdjieff and Sri Aurobindo and Socrates are less important than the process they use. And that's what makes the difference. And it's also the hardest thing for people in our school to grok. They're used to, because uh, this last century, we have become uh, followers of ideas and don't notice that how those ideas get developed is more important. So, for example, um, when you run into people, I bet you 90% of the time that it's still them sharing the ideas they got from Gurdjieff that shifted them. And that's like a contra shock. But if they keep reading Gurdjieff or whoever they pick over and over and adopt his ideas, he will be rolling over in his grave because he never wanted anyone to accept, and neither do I. That's why I don't want whatever you word you're going to use to introduce me. We have no gurus, no teachers, uh, no leaders. All of it is... Well, Christian Murdy is another one. So anyone that's in our school is a leader of uh, ideas, is more a leader of the process of testing them. I mean, even Socrates said an unexamined idea is the, the, the biggest failing we can have because we are not testing it. Uh, we're adopting it unexamined. And so... Gurdjieff was one of the masters, and he threw out people who started to uh, talk about, who began to cite him all the time. He said, they aren't your ideas if you're citing me. I was really drawn to that. Uh, my grandfather, who was uh, half Mohawk and grandmother, uh, were very good at making sure that I grew up thinking for myself. Uh, and I used the process to question everything I was offered. And so uh, when people say, are you a Gurdjieff school? Nope, not. Uh, that would mean I adopted his ideas. I did not argue and that you were back to my contrarian nature. The contrarian nature is deep in our school. Uh, and that's why there's no, I'm one of a lineage. Uh, I stepped in when the previous person uh, who is now dead and we don't follow his ideas and I'm, I'm going to die soon. I don't want anybody following my ideas. I would love people following the process that we're bringing. Uh, and so when I met Gurdjieff and Charlie, who uh, was the person who did a lot of this work, I started really trying to document the epistemology, the way of learning, rather than the cosmology, uh, which is what we think we know. So you may notice I'm refusing to answer your question directly because it has a tendency to glorify people and not what they were trying to bring in a process. That okay? Well, no, it, actually, you you answered it really well. I, you know, I was sort of curious when the thread 
when when the Gurdjieff thread crossed your experience thread. But, you know, so the, the, the next question I'd love for you to delve into that arises beautifully out of this is, can you describe a little bit about the process of learning and growing that you're um, that you learned and have evolved up until this point, and that's so core to, you know, your work in the world. Well, I should also tell you, before I die, my intention is to finish book number seven, which is what that's about and how we got off track from it. So uh, there are many names I apply to this so we don't get attached. The current one I'm using is a self-determining epistemology. It means that any idea I hear, I have a way to test it, not, not argue with it, but test me, I guess is a better way of saying it. So if we had an idea like essence, and uh, I don't teach a lesson of uh, here's what we would know, here's the five points, the key points, the takeaways. Instead, I introduce premise. Premises are foundational to this work so that people can t- try them out for themselves and see uh, what it offers in terms of uh, meaning for a person that hears it. So if you were in sending a group with me, which I always love, and I put out a premise in the group, I would say, think of a project you have inside of Regen Network. And I probably would have you examine the process you're using right now. And the other thing I would do is uh, use a framework to help you overcome the mechanicalness you have about when you look at something. I don't give you an answer. I give you uh, a framework and question and your own lived experience, your own project, your own work. And you go to work for a while testing it. Then I come back and I give you the premises on which I base the question. But the key here is I want you having your own thinking about it before you know mine, because we have a, a tendency to quickly jump in and want to know what the objectives for the lesson are. I don't have any courses. And instead of giving you my thinking, we start with yours. And then once I give you a thought I have, you're holding uh, what I would call a restraining thought to it a thought that's your lived experience and now my lived experience, and you now are more likely to get a third idea between those than mine and yours. So the principle is, build uh, with you reflecting using frameworks, and we have to say a word about frameworks here because they're not interchangeable with models. Uh, We have... And I had so much dogma that's been formed into mental models and tell us the answer. So as you go to Harvard, every class you walk into, they have a model, a business model, a personal model. And once you've got a model, you tend to live, put it out into the world your whole life. Um, I have another principle, a couple. One is using a framework. Uh how are we going to have people know what frameworks mean? 
Well, they we can get they, to that. We can get to that. Keep using okay. it. I this podcast, I've always what I try to and I forgot to set this context for you at the beginning, but I always run this podcast as pure conversation between me and whoever the guest is. Okay. As long as you and I understand what's going on. Oh, good. We're good because I actually love listening to conversations like that when people aren't trying to sort of like make everything, you know, sort of like go to the lowest common denominator because it excites people's. If somebody wants to know what that framework is, they're going to, they're going to, what a framework is, they're going to reach out or they're going to read a book or they're going to ask a question. And that's good. That's what we want is just for you and I to have have the conversation without right. worrying too much. All right. I'm going to proceed then. So whenever I'm trying to be engaged in the epistemology uh, that I believe in, I am examining it with something that disrupts me. Something that even every time I put on a cat session, I'm not allowed to do anything I've done before. And the way I make that happen is I take a subject which I'm interested in that I don't understand completely. And so I must be uh, open to learning. And then I take a framework and I form new questions that I haven't asked. And that bumps me into a place I'm looking at something in a new way. And I end up with insights I never had, ideas I never had. And usually everyone in the room does. Now, they don't have to go there because some people have this default in their mind, which they think they already know. They have these mental models or answers. And so they're translating everything that we offer into their old already knowing the authority, the certified, the research, the other knowing is what I call it, instead of self-developed, self-determined knowing. So this school, which is hundreds of years old, I'm just one in string of people, uh, is all about regenerating a leapfrog in thinking. I call it long thought thinking, where you're taking an idea like I had ideas when I was in college at Berkeley uh, that I was so excited about. And when I learned about how to disrupt my thinking and leap beyond what I thought about the same subject a year before or six months before, and then leap again and leap again and never think I know now, that's the kind of school uh, where people are not attached that are already well-formed thoughts or process. They are, by the time they die, seeking, seeking to be a hundred times beyond the idea they had the first time. That's how I want knowing and learning. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, lots of, I have this sort of branching pattern of, of thoughts and ideas, but the, I think the one that I want to go with is a little non-linear, but has always been something that I've grappled with inside of the school, which is so the, the constant disruption and regeneration of thought and connecting that to learning, I think is what you're describing as one of the core pillars and aims even of the, of the school. And then on the other hand, when operating a business or even life, 
habits, patterns, some form of high functioning automatic. <laughs> I would use that word, which means something to you and I and may mean less to listeners. But, you know, just being able to automate certain processes where you can just sort of be an autopilot and trust, uh, you know, particular action is going to get a particular outcome. I wonder what, you know, if if we sort of set those two up as activating and restraining in a way, how do we reconcile those sort of constant disruption and evolution of thinking, constant innovation with sort of the achieving of um, automated processes that fulfill discrete, particular, predictable, you know, ends. So you're using one word that's getting you in trouble. Mm -hmm. Automated processes. Mm -hmm. I have what I would call soft infrastructure. I mean, you know that I have different layers of people who can work in the school. And there are uh, principles that we operate with in premises. But I don't know what you do with anything I give you. I make sure I never know what you do with anything I give you. So I can never give you advice. I can never give you uh, feedback, right? And so I create infrastructure for you to guide yourself. And I call those um, levels of uh, learning. Like we have people who come in at personal professional, people who come in at business development, and, and people move through these and uh, lineage level and corporate level. Now, all those are soft infrastructure and you know therefore what things are going to look like i lay out how often we're going to talk and what uh the nature of the format's going to look like again soft infrastructure i lay out finances so they're clear and nobody has to figure out when i'm going to build them for something or what they get to do for it i create um roles which are quite clear uh, and people know who to go to. Now, that allows so much to happen that's about creativity. So you know you can meet with me eight times a year in one sh stream and similar in another stream. Uh, what you have to do in a business, and most businesses are structured to put people to sleep. And when you put them to sleep on, quote, automatic process and you tend to put them to sleep on everything and so i teach people how to create what i call non-competitive contribution hierarchies so people have uh something they want to contribute there are ways the fluidity of the business can build on that and individuals can initiate and carry forward because they're working within the soft infrastructure within the premises within the planning and so you can innovate we have the the companies that i built over the year and, and years and i obviously don't travel anymore but People moved through the idea that you need, um, I mean, you can't tell people that I'm trying to tell you something you have to experience to do, uh, but you move to different kinds of work. And if you put something on automatic, you automatically uh, 
put it at the lowest level of thinking. Uh, and if you need uh, certain things happen repeatedly, you can usually define, define a soft infrastructure to help make those happen, but not regiment them. But it requires a very clear framework and how it works. Uh, so you've heard me talk about promises beyond ableness for decades, at least. And that means individuals within this infrastructure decide they want to do something uh, and grow themselves while doing it for a customer. And because the soft infrastructure tells them everything they have to figure out about that. And you, by the way, I just saw an article recently about Gore-Tex. Uh, Bill Gore was in one of the first uh, DuPont systems we built like this, where they have uh, no structured work reporting relationship. It's all things are wrapped around like firemen and policemen and service providers. And if someone sees something they can improve, they go grab uh, a team of people, get funding, and we do this too, uh, set up funding mechanisms so that uh, they can go deliver on that to the firemen. And they figure out how to do it fast because you just, usually a life-saving intervention, but it's initiated from a person or a couple of people who want to make something happen. Now, the kind of things they have on soft infrastructure are a funding board, a uh, a review, and, and what do they call it? Reflect, a review and reflect board. And they also have layouts of where it's how material flows, who can work on it. And so they have infrastructure, but they have a, a parallel inventiveness that comes from people. So that's a challenge is not regimenting the processes, but creating an infrastructure in which people can work and stay learning and contributing. I doubt that that's all perfect care, but well, it, it certainly builds an image for me around right. the sort of the ritual, rhythm and ritual in different ways to kind of create liberating structures where... Yeah, there. don't use the word liberate because there's a company that does that. And that's not what I'm talking about. That's what I mean. People take a term and they think it's what I'm talking about. So it's not. it's not what they mean. Not that they're bad people, but I don't mean the same thing. Okay. Th that's a term that I sometimes use to think about when you create. And so this, so this soft infrastructure idea, I think, is interesting. Um, so the difference is that there's a specific framework that guides everything and poses questions, not a loose association that people can make that frees them up to do things. They're, what we have are frameworks that are usually multidimensional guides so people are using the same language, the same frameworks, and the same principles of development. And liberating structures doesn't have the development process in it that builds a particular mental frameworks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
So there's an image that emerges for me of repetition of through space and time of um, questioning processes, as well as an understanding of, you know, where I would go if I need to pay money or where I would go if I need to get investment from someone for a project or where, so that there's like a clear map of, yeah, that, that allows someone then who's flowing through that to take agency and say, yeah. And the- yeah. There's another thing, which is back to where it starts. There's a strategic framework for the whole of the organization, which has clear buyers and their essence clear. And so every promise beyond ableness starts with those. And so the primary soft infrastructure is the uh, mental clarity that comes from a strategic corporate direction uh, and Goldman parodies and those kind of things, and clear direction on each buyer node that this company serves and their essence. And then individuals can, or groups can step into, here's what we see uh, a buyer a channel, you know, distribution channel, uh, a user needing. And so when they propose something, it's always holding together their essence the essence of the buyer and the essence of the company. And into that, they propose something. And now you have all the soft infrastructure where you go get the help. Yeah. Awesome. Um, thank you. So I'm looking at the time and I know we don't have super long. And I think you've got something at the top of the hour. So the, A lot of so yeah, so so there's two other topics on my mind here, mm-hmm. which all relate. I mean, these are all interwoven yeah. into a bit into a whole that is this conversation. One is just, you know, okay, so region network, we play a lot in the world of, you know, maybe unexpectedly even of computer science. Uh, mm-hmm. We're leveraging the dig- digital tools significantly. Obviously, the realm of computer science has a very, you know, it is a branch from cybernetics. I've heard you speak quite yeah. a lot about cybernetics. Even I would say, I think one of the the threads in the, in the lineage school is Gregory Bateson, who's right. one of the major thinkers in, in cybernetics. But I've also heard you speak disruptively and with a lot of restraint around where cybernetics theory has gotten things wrong with ideas like feedback where, right. um, so I'd love to just is, is, where we need to go beyond cybernetics or is where we need to go back to a common route and go in a different direction from where from where cybernetics as a school has taken thought into sort of automating feedback loops and all of these other sort of ways of approaching um, building systems, architecture. Well, uh, I think the point at which it got confused was when... Uh, Artificial intelligence in the early 20th century uh, was equated with how the mind worked. Uh, and that was the big error because, uh, and behaviorism had a lot to do with that because behaviorism wanted to be seen as a science like natural physics and so forth because they were getting lots of grants and were highly respected and uh, psychology wanted to be. So 
they look for a way to uh, give themselves authority and credibility, and they tack themselves onto the natural sciences and started using um, uh, scientific method, which doesn't work on humans. I'm not even sure it works on, I mean, Einstein doesn't think it works on planets or anything alive. Uh, so the confusion came when we tried to gain respectability for our social sciences using physical sciences. Uh, and cybernetics was one of the groups that wanted uh, credibility and did that. And so you got people picking up the uh, <clears throat> the machine idea of feedback and saying, well, that must work for humans too. So not understanding that there are uh, multiple levels of entities or plants or animals, and this is just in the living world in humans, uh, and then crossing that over with how computers work is where we went wrong. And so uh, the feedback was one of the mechanical ideas uh, that the social scientists used to show that how they were using the kind of physical sciences which were currently credible, they're now all being questioned. So uh, you have to go back to what's the work of physical science, and you have to go back to the idea of what is science. Science is for us to be able to understand how things work. And it turns out that uh, non-living science doesn't work, it is. Uh, and when we've cut up a frog, you can't any longer think of science of learning something from the frog because it's not alive. And so we have to get back to what living system science, like indigenous people do, like story of place, like the work we do in essence thinking. That's all about the working of living systems, non-contaminated with the physical world ideas and with a fragmented science. Um, yeah, really, yeah, really interesting. So the last thing I want to just, you know, kind of cover with you, and this is more for listeners, really, um, before, before I let you go, is that I hear a common, the most common I guess, um, restraint, well, criticism really of this approach is I, and I hear people like our, our mutual acquaintance, um, I would say friend, um, Daniel Christian wall, for instance, um, say things like, yeah, but it just doesn't scale. It's not, it's too hard. It's too esoteric for people. We have to make it simpler so that everybody can get it. That kind of a thing, something like that, where it's sort of like, so I'd love for you to speak to that because I think it's really like yeah. there's theories of change and one theory of change is that everybody should all change and yeah. that's not the the theory here so I'd love to hear you speak to that so uh the reason it doesn't quote scale is humans were born incomplete they're not developed the capacity of the mind and the spirit and the even the body is poorly developed because we think that humans are fixed when they're born, whatever level they have. And maybe there's a little growth you can uh, uh, do with a few skills. What uh, Daniel or others who say that are 
are saying is let's dumb down how we understand the world to the level that humans can currently understand it. The problem is that the level at which the world works, it cannot be dealt with from there. And it's actually very fast. The work we do is so fast. People, it doesn't need to scale. It needs to um, be uh, adopted in places where people have will to grow themselves. And then they gain the capacity to see something in a very short period of time. They go do that with another group of people. Uh, I know that uh, making it simple only feeds the mind that thinks it already knows answers. And I'm watching what the well-intended people like Daniel and Capital Institute do, and they're trying very much to meet the mind where it currently is. And if you do that, we will never have the capacity needed to see the uh nodal answers that are pretty simple and pretty fast to grasp because then what we're doing is trying to build volume of knowledge uh with best practices from other people that aren't really best practices at all but we're cramming them full of distractions so i'd rather work with as i do a very few people because uh it's Maharishi Institute has shown that you only need 2% of people. You don't need anything scaled to create a change. Like in Washington, D.C., where they can drop crime rates for 48 hours just by meditation. There's no scaling. Uh, so I think people have a wrong idea about how humans work. And until we commit to developing their capacity, uh, Scaling what we've got is just garbage. Yeah, thank you. That I think that that's provocative and um, and important to kind of you know really dig in deeper and ask you know what is it what is the essence of of this planet that we're living on? What is the essence of humanity of each of us as individuals? Not just be on this sort of like standardized rote. Right. you know um replication of of things i'm really grateful for your time and i know you've got to hop right off um i do thank, thank you, so you much, gregory Carol. yeah sending you and your family love and hugs so much love thank you bye-bye oh.